Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the political podcast where everything's made up and the points don't matter. Today we have with us Lindsay, Ambria, Hope, Laura, and Kellen. Woo! Yay! Thanks all here. <laughs> um, and we're here. We are here. And this week we're talking about being extremely online and we thought we would talk a little bit about what it's like to be a woman operating in these spaces um, and also to ask some questions about how effective online activism is. So I thought we'd start off um, just talking about what our own experiences have been like, particularly around politics, activism, and online spaces. Um, And so I'd like to ask the question, which did you come to first and what have your experiences been like? Yeah, when I when I kind of was thinking about this, I realized that I had, you know, my own radicalization story or how I became radicalized did come from the internet, but I did not organize through the internet at that time. I was in high school, and if you've listened before, you know my high school was mostly conservative trash. And I came across an article online about the genocide in Darfur, and the information was so intense to me that, you know, as it is as a teenager, I mean, it should be for us all the time, but I feel like we become more jaded with age. And it led me down this path of looking up and looking at a ton of human rights atrocities that were happening around 2004, 2005. I think MySpace was around at that point, but we didn't really mm-hmm. use MySpace for posting political things. But so I decided to put up pictures of dead and dying people all over my school with information on how to call the White House. Uh, the principal wasn't too pumped about this, and I had to take them down. <laughs> um <laughs> But I was allowed to speak to students on these issues, um, and I was able to take up an underground newspaper that my brother and his friends had started called News for the Little Guy. Um, and I want to scan out one of the uh, one of the shit, one of the I want to say episodes, but that's not it. Issues. Issues. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that we can tweet that out for you all to uh, make fun of me as a child. Um, and we. Yay. <laughs> And and that was our way to like write under pseudonyms like what we were feeling at that time politically. Um, and so I thought it was interesting that while I was radicalized by the Internet, I came to activism through more of like the classical zine uh, route. All right. Yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> it's, I, it's either really cool or really ineffective. I'm really unsure. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, when you're in a in a position sort of like you were as a high schooler, like what else are you gonna do? I don't know. I think that's cool and brave. So, that's I mean, I also, yeah, your own your own process of radicalization and education matters too, right? Like maybe you didn't. Uh, who knows how many people you convinced with your zines, but it was part of your own development too. Totally. And, and I just wanted to add that since then, my experiences have become much more of a mix of online and offline activism. And I think specifically as a woman, I've felt pretty frustrated with the fair share of men trolling me for various posts that I've um, written and trying to win arguments online. And just like in this like archetypical masculine way, which is just frustrating. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense I think I for me um radicalization also sort of goes back to high school so I think I mentioned before that 
I kind of came to leftism through anti-racist convictions. And that was part of growing up, sort of how and where I did. And for me, and the reason that I am the way that I am, I think a huge part of that is like my mom who, you know, wanted to talk to me and my brother at dinner about the news or politics, elections and that kind of thing. Um, And so I think thanks to her, I've never been somebody that felt like I needed to stay quiet. Um, And I think that's something that women often tend to feel and, and probably people of color and other oppressed minorities too. But I didn't, I, I've had a really strong sense of self for like a really long time. And I credit that to my mom, who's just incredible and strong and kind and helped me resist a lot of the forces that conspire us as women, conspire against us as women and tell us to like sit down and shut up and look pretty. But all of that being said, over the last year and a half or so, um, I think that I, I've definitely become increasingly online at the same time that I've become really active working with sexual assault survivors on my university campus and like busting my ass to make the particular school that I go to and my department um, a less shitty place for women to be. And like I could, I could tell you guys some horror stories about what women experience, um, you know, in this particular place, but anyway, I I guess I've always been a feminist, like, since birth, but, like, working on the survivor advocacy stuff has lit such a fire in me that I am just angry all the time, (laughs) Um, and being online, like, definitely doesn't help, because it's so easy to get dragged into, you know, going down the rabbit hole of, like, men's rights you know reading about these things that like you know you 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 see what these guys are saying on twitter and you're just like re-traumatized almost like it makes me feel deeply unsafe and that's just like not a good thing and definitely makes me angrier and I don't need to be this angry um so I think for me organizing is in large part a way to try to take that anger and use it productively uh and the thing that I like to think to myself as I'm as I'm you know working my way through this world is do no harm but take absolutely no shit (laughs) great (laughs) so for me I've been participating in direct action and other forms of organizing pretty much since I was in high school and only really got into online spaces for this in the last couple of years Um, I you know was really an early adapter of the internet and used it a lot but wasn't really aware of it I don't think as a political tool it was mostly like live journaling my feelings and making mixed CDs Um, (laughs) so I I don't think I was really very outward facing in how I used the internet when I was younger Um, but when I started getting more into online activist and leftist spaces I was initially really put off by how many were pretty much just dudes humble bragging or debating things in a really (laughs) sloppy way. And Mm. like it wasn't, I didn't ever feel particularly like I couldn't participate, but I just, there wasn't any motivation to, um, I wasn't Mm. really trying to like tell everyone on the internet that they were wrong. Wasn't enough carrot for me. So, (laughs) (laughs) um, you're a smarter than all of us. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know about that, but, um, Lazy, maybe. I need a lot of motivation to want to spend my time doing that. So I tend to now enjoy more lighthearted spaces and also a couple that are exclusively female, like different Facebook groups. 
where I find myself participating more and it feels more like collaboration than competition. And I'm super amazed at how fast information moves online and I'm really creeped out by how quickly mob mentalities develop and people pick up the pitchforks about something. Totally. For sure. Um, I wasn't really radicalized by the internet and I was really, it's kind of funny because I was really obsessed with it when I was young to the extent that like my, my mom had this old PC in our apartment when I was like 12. I don't know how I did it, but somehow I used MS DOS on this like Windows 95 <laughs> and, and got it to run AOL off of the CDs that like came in the mail. Yes. <laughs> I don't know how I did it. <laughs> I, like, had to, like, convince the computer to do it. We had to have, like, an argument about it. Um, but, yeah, I mostly came to uh, activism and leftist politics just through personal relationships. Uh, it didn't really happen for me on the Internet. Um, but since then, uh, the Internet's been, I think, a really great tool for me to deepen or start real-life relationships with other people that I have things in common with. Um, yeah. Great. Um, I think that the internet was a pretty big part of radicalization for me. Um, not necessarily the biggest part, but I mean, it was, it was huge because I do live in a very conservative area and, um, you know, most of the predominant, uh, political opinions are very conservative. And so once I kind of began to, um, be exposed to ideas through my friends that were, you know, feminist and socialist, um, or just generally progressive, I was able to find more information about those things on the internet. Um, and I definitely, I don't know, I'd be a lot, I would have a lot less um, deep an understanding of leftist politics. And I don't even think I have a very deep understanding at this point, but I would be, I mean, I would be in a position with much less information if I did not have access to the internet, because it does bring so much information to the fingertips of just individuals who otherwise wouldn't know even what to look for. And in the past several years, I've made friends with people, especially on Twitter. Like I've been on Twitter since 2008, 2009, and I've um, had some of the same mutual followers for a lot of that time. And um, a lot of those people are leftists and just listening to them and kind of seeing their radicalization and forming relationships with them has been pretty um, integral in my own radicalization. But I also, where I live, I don't have, I don't have too many friends who are leftists. And so by being able to use the internet to like cultivate communities of other leftists, I've definitely been able to learn a lot more. Um, and it's made the internet a much more supportive place for myself. I have had experiences where I've been, you know, harassed and I have actively try to avoid getting into arguments with people who disagree with me because I know that a lot of people are just not there to learn. They're there to try and change your mind or troll. Um, and so I've just, I've gotten much more active about curating my online communities to, pe to be people who share my ideals and who have, I guess, different ideals, but along the same wavelength um, so that I can continue to learn. But, you know, I have enough conservative friends. I have enough libertarian friends in my own day-to-day -day life, and I have very few leftist friends around me. So it's, um, yeah, it's been a pretty big part of my radicalization and my continued involvement in, you know, some sort of a leftist community. Sorry if I sound incoherent. I'm on a lot of cold medicine right now. <laughs> <laughs> You're good. You're doing great. Thanks. <laughs> 
So as a lot of you touched on there, um, in a lot of online spaces that are not exclusively uh, women or at least, you know, very heavily moderated, it seems like cisgendered men dominate the conversation. So I'm curious. Yeah. um, And I'd like to know really if there's anything you think we can do to change this dynamic, whether that's like having different kinds of moderation or structuring things differently or trying to have some kind of progressive stack in online spaces. And I think this includes internal things like Slack and Rocket Chat, but also listservs and social media and really anywhere online that people are having discussions about things. Yeah, that's such a good question. I I just was thinking about how, and this is like a theory in my brain that is only based on things that I'm thinking about and not based on any... Uh, actual knowledge so uh, citation (laughs) needed and not available sorry everyone but um, (laughs) I almost am thinking you just cited your own brain (laughs) there you go thank you yeah I don't know I was thinking about like how when I see a lot of these discussions happening um, and the example I'm going to share is through a listserv um, but when I see a lot of these arguments happening in online spaces and, and how dominated they are by men primarily I'm exhausted just looking at it and the theory that I've just come to in my brain (laughs) is I'm wondering if like the emotional labor and like the general societal labor that women take on on a day-to-day makes us less likely to jump into those scenarios because we always play the role of peacekeeper or mediator or um are kind of in this role of like trying to stop the the like heatedness or like the pitchfork scenario that um hope had described before anyway so that's my theory if anyone knows anything about that get at me and that's cool um (laughs) so the democratic socialists of america have an activist listserv and you know anyone can really post through this listserv and it's to try to like start conversation about different things and it can be on really any uh socialist topic but it feels insanely male dominated and for me it seems like the culture shift that needs to happen would need to be you know kind of like the spirit of progressive stack or um a limit to how you can post or or maybe you just like have uh, an email go out and be like, hey, keep in mind that the DSA is already an extremely male dominated organization and to try to lift up voices that are not within that norm, like maybe take a note from most community agreements and step back and not just continue to dominate. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, I mean, it's 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 hard to enforce Um, And I think enforcement becomes like an issue with a lot of problems um, in online spaces. There's a group of people, the group of people who have the biggest or or most significant opportunity to make things better are those same cisgendered men that Hope was talking about. And so I would like to make a little impassioned plea to the men listening to Season of the Bitch right now take some fucking responsibility for yourselves and your actions um, and like be the person to call out other men too. If you feel like you're doing great, maybe you are, but there's a lot of things that I think guys are just not aware of um, online that create 
problems for women or make women feel like excluded from spaces. So for example, like jokey threats, maybe it's cool for you to say like, oh my gosh, like I hate that guy. Like if I had a gun with two bullets and I was in a room with him and Hitler and Osama bin Laden, I'd shoot him twice. Like, ah, ha, ha, ha. Um, oh god! Oh, <laughs> like maybe that's funny. I don't know. It, it was no. Nope, you know, it's not. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's definitely not funny if you are doing it. If you're saying that about or you know making the same kinds of comments about somebody who's coming from sort of a different power place in so, place of power in society. So mm-hmm. for women, threats of violence online, like if they're a joke, it. I I personally can't ever tell. Like, Mm -mm. it all feels real to me because in the same way that, like, being catcalled on the street will never not feel threatening to me. Like, jokes about violence on the internet will never not feel threatening to me. I don't care how you meant it. It's scary. Um, And that's the same thing, you know, you, if you're a white man, you can't, or a white woman, like, white anything, you can't make jokes about lynching or really any kind of physical violence towards black people like it's it's not doesn't matter what your intentions are there's a way those things are going to be interpreted based on people's actual experiences and it's really important for us to consider online who is the target of this how are they going to understand it um and And the 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 societal like as you were saying the societal structures in place that amplify that violence in real time in real spaces exactly um you know so thinking about how you contribute to hostile environments and it doesn't like the example that i used is like an actual like literal threat of violence like that's that's pretty cut and dry but there are other things that you can do that just that make thing that make places online inhospitable to women or to other groups like you know throwing around words like bitch or other terms that are used predominantly to describe women as you know like calling people pussies or whatever like that's a situation that I mean I'm not going to tell you like these are words you can't ever use or whatever but um, the way that you use language like language itself determines how people feel in spaces and so thinking about you know am I speaking in a way that that you know is undermining the credibility of women in this space or that's you know am I attacking femininity as a concept like maybe these are things that are like you don't want to think about when you're posting memes but like you should be thinking about them always and like we're not telling you I mean the rest of us kind of have to think about it all the time so right exactly (laughs) and and the I think the biggest thing too is just to listen to women like when they tell you there's a problem Like, that's why we started out, literally the first thing that we said when we came on air on this podcast was like, you don't get to use this as an excuse to call people bitches. And so far, I think people have been pretty good about not calling us bitches. Uh, But that shouldn't, like, in an ideal world, you would figure that out on your own. You know, like, we wouldn't have to tell you. Yeah. Um, But we're telling you, so listen. And don't just listen to us because we have a podcast. Like, listen to the women who are commenting, you know, on your post on Facebook or whatever. 
Yeah, I think you both make some really good points about putting the responsibility back on the people who have disproportionately more power or more dominance in those situations to really, you know, regulate themselves and to step back. And I think this is probably a good time to mention Verit and talk a little bit about that because to me, (laughs) that's a pretty good example of uh, sort of trying to trying to come up with a solution to, oh, there's all this like fake news that's dominating and um, trying to over way overstep and overreach to an absurd degree how to try to combat things happening online. And I know that like probably by the time this comes out, people will have forgotten that this was a thing and Chapo already talked about it. (laughs) But I still think our two cents matter here. Hell yeah. Yeah, it's the weirdest thing. And it it's to me, it's like twofold, right? It's it's trying to combat this like inundation of information that is coming at us at way too rapid of a rate and way too many news sources are not really shedding light on actual truths. And so it's this this very specific, though, way of trying to do that that is like the most lib thing that exists. It's like (laughs) the hashtag resistance people. It's like the people who are just like waiting with bated breath for Hillary Clinton's autobiography to come out and like tell us all how Bernie Sanders ruined her chances or some shit. Like Mm -hmm. I just think it's an absolute. I I mean, I, I understand the need to like mitigate all the insanity that's happening on the Internet. But this seems like like a really bad idea. Can you explain what it is exactly we're discussing? What's Verit? Oh, shit. Um, Hope, do you want to talk about this? Yeah, so it's basically something um, that was created to prove, like, true claims about, um, to, to validate claims about Hillary Clinton and around the election, and it gives you a code to embed showing that it's been proven true by this website. So and like Snopes or PolitiFact. Pretty much, but like solely to benefit Hillary Clinton, pretty much. Right. <laughs> and, and you need like this very specific code. Like you need your Verit code right. to, to fucking be able to verify this. Like some ridiculously long digit code to like figure that shit out. So that's the gist of it. Yeah. And it's it's worth pointed out that it's like it's not advertised as being like the 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 catchphrase was literally like, you know, media for the 63 million or whatever. Like, oh, it's yes. Explicitly like pro um, it's, it's 65.8 million. I just put that into Barrett. <laughs> Uh, oh, <laughs> I have to say, Amazing. I did vote for Hillary Clinton, and I really don't want to be included in that number. Like, <laughs> yeah, well, could we well, be requested to not we, be counted? We would like to not be counted. Yeah, subtract me, please. Uh, well, Chapo made a really good point that when they were talking about this, they're like, "I bet about half of our listeners voted for Hillary Clinton, but they voted for Hillary Clinton because they they like looked at the opposition and got a severe pit in their stomach. They weren't like." Oh, I really think Hillary Clinton is the future. And so yeah. that that is a lot of voters within that amount that are like not fully behind Hillary Clinton. Um and kind of along this note, I when I was thinking about Vera and just like this whole culture surrounding um Hillary Clinton and like 
you know, they make these claims like she's the most the most um, criticized woman in U.S. history, which in my mind is debatable. Like they're for sure the Republican Party and otherwise people have been coming after Hillary Clinton for fucking decades. So I get that. But at the same time, I feel like this person who has been an ally of Wall Street and, uh, you know, not like it, it was for like very strict um, prison ramping up in the 90s. Like she is not someone who speaks for the left. And the fact that like this consumerist feminism and the hashtag resistance and like the pink hat type of resistance kind of has co-opted feminism in some ways. At least I feel that way in the mainstream culture. It makes me upset because I feel like it's actually stagnating what feminism is. And like we need to have a real critical conversation about where women are in the United States. Like when the UN came last year and did a uh, study on uh, comparing women and men in the workplace and in other social spheres, they were like, the U.S. is way behind literally every other developed nation in the world in this way. Um, and I think we need to realize that, like, we are not, we have very little to be, like, hanging up our pink hats and being like, we did it. We posted online this thing about Hillary Clinton and on my job's done. It's like, no, we still need to be out in the streets and, like, advocating for all of these extremely important issues that affect women all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. And like, and Verit was really created as, and they explicitly said, it's a website intended to reflect the worldview of Clinton voters and to give them talking points to use in social media arguments. And to me, this just seems like one big tantrum where Clinton is like, well, I tried to do the stuff Bernie did and people didn't like it. And now I'm trying to do the stuff that Trump did and people still don't like it. And she's just like trying, like all the, all like this fake news stuff to combat it with like your own version of slanted infographics for online discussions with mostly trolls just seems absurd and way out of touch. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I like, I hate that we're having this conversation in the first place for so many reasons. First of all, I don't want to still be talking about Hillary Clinton. Like <laughs> here, yeah. 10 months ago, why are we still talking? She won't about go Hillary away. Clinton? She won't go back to the woods. And the other thing is, though, like, I I find myself in positions, like, I'm being put, I feel like, and I feel like a lot of women on the left maybe have this experience to some degree or another, like, because we can't stop talking about Hillary Clinton, like, in the, in the words of another just preeminent socialist woman of our time, uh, feminist woman of our time, Taylor Swift, I would very much <laughs> like to be excluded from this narrative, and yet here I am, part of the narrative, again, like Hillary Clinton keeps making things about her. It's not, you know, she didn't lose the election. We all lost it for her, et cetera, et cetera. That being so like, there's legitimate reason to criticize her. Absolutely. But then we also have people who won't stop, you know, like won't move away from sexist critiques of Clinton. And it's like, I then find myself in a position of being like Clinton's defender like, being like, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of things that are really terrible. She, you know, supported racist policing policies when she was first lady. 
Like, she is totally beholden to corporate interests. Literally benefited from slave labor, like, when she was the first lady in Arkansas or whatever. <laughs> like, just, like, part of the prison industrial complex on so many levels. Yeah. And all of that is so terrible. So, like, we can talk about that. And we can talk about how she's, I would argue, you know, hurting the progressive cause by, you know, continuing to put herself out there and relitigate the 2016 election. All of that's legitimate. But being like, Hillary Clinton's like a frigid bitch is not a legitimate Ooh. criticism, you know? And yeah. I think that the Verit thing has come back up and there's so much coded language that we use to talk about Clinton. And like, I want to be able to say Verit is like a stupid project that's being handled like the, you know, the, the people behind it are just acting like total idiots on social media. And all of it's funny without getting into... Like, you know, God, Hillary Clinton can go suck a dick, you know? I think, like, one of the creators of Verit was actually a woman, and she was just talking about, she tweeted something about how people were saying that it was, like, it clearly had to have been a man's idea because it was so bad, and she's like, that's sexist. And I'm like, no, like, feminism means women can have bad ideas, too. <laughs> like, that's equality. You're not above reproach on the basis of being a woman. Like, feminists can still have legitimate critiques of you, even though you are a woman. Uh, yeah. Same yeah. for Hillary. <laughs> yeah. And we're not, like, betraying our our gender by being, like, Hillary Clinton is not the end-all, be-all of womanhood. You know? Like, it's just, what are we saying to, you know, our trans allies? What are we saying to our allies of color if, like, Hillary Clinton is the the ideal of womanhood full stop, you know? So I'm going to keep it moving a little bit now because I feel like this could almost be its own episode. I'm going <laughs> to tell a really fast, funny story, but you feel free to edit this out of the final episode if you want. So we stayed with some <laughs> friends, um, a friend of mine from high school and his wife a couple of weeks ago. And I think my friend is actually a supporter of the podcast, so he'll hear this if we keep it in. But um, so his wife is like a super hardcore Hillary supporter of like the most like shove it down your throat kind of way. And he knows this. like we've had some friendly debates about it and stuff. We stayed in their basement of their new house and they have like a, she has a solid wall of like Hillary books in their basement. And we woke up in the morning and my partner was so just like it was so intense that he wrote on the little pieces of paper Bernie would have won and he stuck it in all of her Hillary books. <laughs> yes oh Beautiful. my god i thought you were gonna say the room you were staying in had a full wall of like Hil a hillary clinton like collage oh god <laughs> that would have been so much worse hillary clinton staring at you with like a sassy smile that's kind of what her well like, her books are all like that so that's not too far from being the truth um it's a lot of yes a lot of that so anyways, that was my weird story. And I think now I am... No, that's <laughs> it was, I can't wait till she finds it. My friend said he's going to wait till they have an argument and then, like, open the book up and just, like, try to win the argument. Can I throw one final thing in here? Just, yeah. like, to close the book literally on this Hillary thing. Like, I also think that it's really important for people on the left, men and women alike, to recognize that, like... And I think we all probably do on this podcast that, like, allegations of sexism during the campaign itself, like, also real, also valid. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. you know, Hillary Clinton was not a great candidate for a lot of reasons, but, like, it also hurt that she was a woman. And, like, mm -hmm. 
nobody listening to this should take like us being like, yeah, we were, I think all of us Bernie Sanders supporters, those of us in you swing states, it. I think, you know, ended up voting for Hillary. Yep. Uh, but like, that's not a denial in any way that like, there was a lot of shit that happened that was really, really bad. And that's all I wanted to say about that. And now I think we're going to pivot and Ambria is going to tell us a story. Well, this is funny because um, I brought this up online to some people when we were talking about uh, like using chat rooms as as young people. And I was like, yeah, you know how it was when you were not one but two young girls at a keyboard. Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> when we were like eight years old and you're in a chat room and you're like, I'm 19 female I live in Australia and uh, you're like you have like a an internet boyfriend in England who probably who may or may not believe that he's talking to one 18 year old girl um, yes but is instead communicating with two eight-year-olds who are like I'm a doctor <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Who are like arguing over what to say uh, to to the boyfriends online, and uh, sometimes we pretended to be older adults, but I think uh, teenage boys were like um, the goal, you know. When you're a preteen, teenage boys are like these like mystical jaw dropping creatures. Did anybody else? <laughs> the funny thing is, is, a lot of the guys were like, "What?" And then women showed up and commented, and they were like, "Oh, totally." Yeah, <laughs> yep. I did not have yeah. any experiences like this. I did. I did. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm the odd one out. That's great. Oh, yeah. All right, so we're going to keep it going with the dessert portion of this episode, and now we're going to play some music. Chicago be so apocalyptic. 
tactic if we want to be specific cage your soul kill your goals love does grow so slow but hate is the first to get old place to place cottage grove to college road from bridgeport and cabrini green exes don't mean anything to you lsd and strike out i wonder if i'll ever wait out i wonder if i'll ever wait out i wonder if i'll ever wait out or be more correct than when my skin body blacks out in front of cops that are on the lookout teacher i'm afraid to look out you taught me how to use whiteouts you taught me how to use whiteouts but now i'm about to go blackout cause my black's out you taught me how to use whiteouts you taught me how to use whiteouts but now i'm about to go blackout cause my black's out see queer I can't without struggle, without bottles. They say liquor runs fast in the blood, but my father runs faster than his father and my auntie and my granny. Food and liquor, cancer, my casket, obituary, my family. Schools never taught or prepared me for this. I've seen bodies caught by bodies. Schools never saved them. We never had a black teacher, only homeless black preachers. Old niggas still on the block telling me your blood, keep your head in the books, this gang life ain't for you. But these schools, these institutions, they not looking out for me. They just want to absorb me. They just want to white out me. What happens to a black person when they realize they black and everything they learned that was supposed to be in service to them is actually built to kill them. And they can't white out. They can't white out. Taught me how to use whiteouts. You taught me how to use whiteouts. But now I'm about to go blackout. Cause my black's out. You taught me how to use whiteouts. You taught me how to use whiteouts. But now I'm about to go blackout. Cause my black's out. You taught me how to use whiteouts. You taught me how to use whiteouts. But now I'm about to go blackout. Cause my black's out. Hey, it's Soul Patches. The song you just heard is called White Out. It was written at a time where I was reflecting on my experiences with only having white teachers in my life. They defined what was right and what was wrong and were rewarded to continue into their careers and prosper. I had always wondered about other people of color and black folks outside of school and just having this sensation of like wanting to know like uh, what were their stories, what were their teachings. This song is a mixture of uh, of those experiences with a mixture of like uh, my family, uh, my father, my grandparents, my auntie, and uh, just talking about like like ways in which like black people cope when 
all else fails them when they realize everything they've been taught is built to kill them. And so I really wanted to make that a, a strong um, uh, point in this uh, in this song. And I just really, uh, really uh, invest my heart soul into just being as honest as possible. And I really hope that uh, you can check out the song again. But where? Thank you for listening. All right, so now we're going to talk about two articles um, that we thought were relevant and informed some of this discussion. One of them is called From Women in Technology to Gender Technoscience, and the other one is called A Cyborg Manifesto, Science, Technology, and Socialist Feminism in the Late 20th Century. And we'll tweet out both of these afterwards as well. So in the first reading um, from Women and Technology to Gender Technoscience, uh, I pulled a quote out of here that I thought was really interesting. Um, And she says, it's not just a question of acquiring technical skills because skills are embedded in a culture of masculinity that's largely conterminous with the culture of technology. Both at school and at the workplace, this culture is incompatible with femininity. And therefore, to enter this world, to learn its language, women have first to forsake their femininity. And to me, that was a pretty provocative quote and sort of speaks to the idea that we can't just try and fit women into these systems that are conceptualized and maintained by cisgendered men. And I think it's important to note that there's an inherent bias with systems and tools created by cisgendered men and the ways it excludes the perspective of everyone else. Uh, Even things like layouts, algorithms used to decide who sees what, and even like things like the frequency or existence of push notifications might look different if this weren't the case. Um, Totally. Yeah. So I sort of wanted to just open, open that up and a general discussion of the article to see what you all thought about it. Hope, can you talk a little bit more about when we say, you know, things that are designed by men sort of exclusively designed by men might look different if women had been involved in some way, like push notifications. Can you give us a little bit more detail on an example of what that might mean? Sure. Yeah. Um, And this also kind of dovetails with the idea that because these platforms are intended to make money, um, that's also something to consider as well. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people feel sort of harassed by their mobile devices, that they're constantly getting Mm -hmm. notifications and, you know, you don't have a lot of easy say over what you get notified about and when, unless you really do the digging to figure out how to do it. And even then there are limits. So Mm. I think that if you included a broader audience and the focus was more on making your tools and your device work for you, as opposed to sort of you working for your device, I think that would look really different, particularly through the lens of feminist socialism and considering all of the many hats that women are wearing and the things that they're juggling and what's most important to them. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then when I talk about the algorithms used to decide who sees what, that's sort of along the lines of the things that, that trend or that get pushed to the top of your timeline tend to be you know, things that have the most controversy associated with them. But then there's also a whole lot of factors that influence what you don't see. So... If you look at a friend's Facebook page, you may see a bunch of posts that you never saw in your timeline. And that's because the Facebook algorithm decided that that wasn't something either you should see or you wanted to see. And we don't have a lot of say over what that is. So 
sort of more positive content and even sometimes self-promotion. Like if somebody's doing a project and they post something about that project that gets buried because Facebook wants people to buy ads for that. Yeah, I was going to say just in terms of like the the like what gets promoted on Facebook and not having control, a lot of the stuff that that is in, you know, the push notifications or on the side of the page where Facebook shows you, you know, news that you may have missed. So much of it is stuff that's like that's really terrible, like just really sad stuff, including like, you know, murders or things like that. Um, I don't I'm I'm not. I don't know how else to describe like bad stuff sounds kind of simplistic, but um, I know for, for a lot of people who have dealt with trauma, there's just things that you don't want to see. Um, Mm -hmm. And women, again, women, people of color, people who, you know, have grown up or lived most of their lives poor people who are not represented in tech are also (laughs) much more likely to be, um, to have experienced forms of trauma. And uh, for a lot of people, I know, maybe you don't want to see, like there's things that you just don't want to see at the top of your Facebook page. Um, so for me, you know, I, I've had a disproportionate number of people that I care about die in car crashes. Like it's <sighs> kind of crazy mm. how many people I know who've died in car crashes. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm giving this as an example sort of, um, because it's the kind of thing that pops up in news. Of course, there's other things and like sexual violence is something that a lot of women have experienced that comes up. But there's no filter for me that's like, I don't want to see stories about rape or I don't want to see stories about people dying in a car crash. And like, I think that that sort of the further you are for, from the top of, uh, you know, the pyramid of social oppression, um, the more of those things that you have, you know, I don't have any particular personal experience with gun violence but like that's a mark of my privilege you know and Mm. if I did then I might want to you know have some means to not see stories about gun violence or any kind of violence like at the top of my Facebook feed when I log in but people who don't necessarily have those kinds of hang-ups are the ones that are designing these systems Um, and I think that's one of the things that you know we don't necessarily think about that much that can be a feminist issue, but not exclusively a feminist issue that that's related to what what Hope was talking about. I will say too, one problem I have with this article is that it um, posits that gender is basically a binary construct um, rather than a spectrum. So that's obviously problematic. And that's I think it's better to talk about the fact that these are mostly designed and run by cisgendered white men rather than trying to specifically say that women are excluded because it excludes a whole spectrum. Right. Absolutely. I do think it's interesting. Um, the, the concept of like uh, hiding your femininity or, um, kind of pushing that to the side. And I think there's a long history, uh, a long feminist history of kind of pushing back on that. And yeah. I don't necessarily know of it within this specific context, but I know, um, for example, within the history of punk music and the Riot Girl movement, um, Kathleen Hanna of Bikini Kill would talk with a Valley Girl accent. And she would specifically, she wanted to talk with a Valley Girl accent and she would say the most powerful moving shit while speaking in a Valley Girl <laughs> accent. 
And similarly, her lyrics would say things like, that girl thinks she's the queen of the neighborhood. I got news for you. She is. Like, she would take, <laughs> she would take these things of, like, uh, that were perceived to be feminine, like being catty with one another. And so she would say things like, that girl thinks she's the queen of the neighborhood. And she's like, well, guess what? She totally is. And, like, would be, like, more showing solidarity with that. And I think it's a very similar concept of kind of, like, putting on its head what it means to sh- outwardly show uh, quote unquote feminine characteristics. Yeah. And I think in the, in the workplace, I mean, this is something we see uh, in science in the workplace and conversations that being masculine or being male is gender neutral. <laughs> right. Right. While being feminine or expressing things that have been characterized as feminine is being yeah. gendered. Right. And a lot of people perceive you know, something as gender neutral only Mm -hmm. if it's masculine, right? Like, oh, if I want to become less gendered, Mm -hmm. I become less feminine. And we also see that in conversation. I read an interesting article called um, The Right to Speak and the Right Not Mm -hmm. to Listen um, by Hannah Coolidge. Uh, And it talks about sort of emotional tactics that men use in conversation Mm -hmm. Or that are considered masculine. We all use them. But, you know, maybe being aggressive, interrupting a lot, um, shaking your head when somebody's talking or like, you know, flattening your lips out to seem kind of incredulous or whatever. Those are all emotional tactics. But women's emotions are not fair game in logic because all of a sudden then it's considered gendered. And I think, you know, that also goes for like, you know, caretaking in the workplace, caretaking of the environment, caretaking of your coworkers. That is seen as something that's feminine and women are told mm. not to do mm. it instead of asking how how can we change the workplace so that everybody feels responsible mm-hmm. for taking care of each other. And it's not I think there's actually the a quote about that in the um, the article that we were just discussing by uh, Judy Weissman from Women in Technology to Gender Technoscience. She says, the strengths and limitations of equal employment opportunity policies have been much debated over the intervening decades. What is beyond doubt, however, is the extent and intransigence of women's marginalization from scientific and technical pursuits. Feminists at that time pointed out that the liberal feminist tradition located the problem in women, their socialization, their aspirations and values, Mm -hmm. and did not ask the broader questions of whether and in what way technoscience and its institutions could be reshaped to accommodate women. Women were being asked to exchange major aspects of their gender identity for a masculine version without prescribing a similar degendering process for men, um, which I think mm. also touches on how like men are considered to be neutral and women are considered to be gendered. And of course, how that does apply to technology and jobs and technology particularly. Yeah, Absolutely. thank you for reading That's that. That's great. Um, and then for the other uh, reading, I think, Laura, you had a pretty good synopsis of that, if you don't mind sharing that. Sure. Um, so in Donna Haraway's uh, Cyborg Manifesto, Science, Technology, and Socialist Feminism in the Late 20th Century, she talks about cyborg writing as a decolonial strategy. Um, it was kind of a nuanced article that it took a, it took a little bit to get through, but um the decolonial strategy is that women and women of color and generally everyone that isn't associated with the historical West, um, West being in quotes, it's obviously not a geographic space. And 
I believe here she's distinguishing the West in the way that Edward Said did in his book Orientalism, uh, which I would highly recommend if anyone wants another book to read. <laughs> she, she writes, feminist cyborg stories have the task of recording communication and intel intelligence to subvert command and control. And um, it has a way to get us out of this dualism where there's more elasticity and nuance available from the sheer amount of information. However, women and other non-Western voices still need to disrupt the norm with colonial white man discourse online. Yeah, and I think that we can't do that until we have more truly diverse representation. And I'm not sure within startup culture and within the tech world that that's that there's a clear path forward for that now. Mm. Yeah. Um. So the the next question I had is being extremely online. Is it a gateway drug for activism or does it give people permission to do nothing? Yeah, so I think um, both. I think it's definitely a way for people to connect. And, you know, as we spoke about last week, particularly in rural areas. Um, and, for example, my stepmom is the only parent of mine that voted for Hillary. Two of my parents voted for Gary Johnson and my dad voted for Trump. Um, my stepmom lives in kind of a bougie suburb. And I think she generally feels isolated in her political ideology between my dad and some of the women she interacts with regularly. Um, so we exchange videos and links through Facebook Messenger all the time. And and while it is distinctively lib, uh, but she, it makes me feel connected to her and have solidarity with her. And, and she definitely, I think, gets a lot out of being able to share in that way. And so it, it'll, it gives her a gateway to support a lot of the things I'm doing, even if she's not as leftist as I am. And I think for me, me my stepmom and I have not had a historically great relationship and the internet has actually like helped facilitate that. That's awesome. That's great. I'm also all about the radicalized step-parents move. <laughs> Continue. Sorry. Definitely, like, yeah, radicalize the parents is a, is a solid movement. <laughs> yes. Hashtag radicalize step-parents. <laughs> yeah, I think, like Laura said, it just, like, it, it really depends, you know, and I think with great power comes great responsibility. Uh, you know, I have found it to be an incredible tool for getting real-world work done. Um, I mean, this this podcast is an example. Of course, this podcast isn't uh, like activism itself mm -hmm. materially. Um, it's, of course, a, a place for discussion. But, you know, I, I think it can build a sense of community for people working together. I think um, for me, it's it's really been something that I've used to arrange meetups with people in real life. And, um, you know, especially like meet to meet with groups of women in the DSA the Democratic Socialists of America. I think one big downside other than, you know, people kind of feeling like they're doing more than they are is that it it can lead people to have bitter fights about things that I think in real life we would see more so as mm. minor differences mm -hmm. if we were just talking about yeah. them in person. Yeah. Um, I think when you're when you're having written arguments, everything becomes sort of more definitive. Um, there's sort of a written record right there of everything that's been said in the conversation. Whereas when you're talking in person, it's a little bit easier for each person to kind of slowly adjust themselves to what the other person is saying as they find common ground. They can kind of, you know, scoot towards each other uh, if they're, you know, really trying to have a good conversation. You know, I think just talking and writing online 
it's just less nuanced, uh, less grounded in just the reality of, of difference and difficulty when people with different perspectives are communicating. Uh, but at the same time, I've also found common ground with people that I didn't know I had with maybe people I had already known for a while or, or mm-hmm. something like that. And I, I had opportunities for new conversations. Absolutely. Um, I also agree that it does both. It, you know, allows for some complacency and activism and also fosters it as well. Um, because I've not necessarily been in positions where I could engage in activism. Um, I worked in, you know, privately owned company in a very small town and like I got shit for having a Bernie bumper sticker on my car. Um, So I knew that I could not be any more loudly political than having a bumper sticker on my car where I was. Um, So just being online, you know, being present in leftist spaces where I could find them was all I could do. You know, signing petitions was like the extent of my activism. But now that I live in a city, I have more opportunities. um, And, you know, I'm, I'm working in, well, trying to help organize a chapter of the DSA where I live, um, just trying to be more active in general. But a lot of those opportunities that I now have in real life, I've found online. Um, I found my local DSA organizing committee through Twitter. So it does, I mean, it does allow for complacency, but it allows for connection as well. And sometimes connection is all you can manage. So I don't know. I think it does both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's incumbent on us to like, as users of the online to make sure that we're not just stopping there. Like the internet itself isn't a good thing or a bad thing. It's like the way that we use it that gives it its valence. And so I think, you know, people, there are people of, like we've sort of said, the hashtag resistance that are comfortable sheet caking and posting about Trump and, you know, pat themselves on the back for a job well done. But I think that for those of us for whom that isn't, you know, isn't satisfying, um, we do more. And I think that people for whom that is satisfying, you know, we're never going to do more. You know, they would, instead of posting on Twitter, maybe they'd, you know, talk to their spouse about how frustrated they are and that would be it or whatever. But like, I know for me, I, I'm also part of the DSA. Like I was DSA adjacent for a while. Um, you know, had done organized, um, a little bit in New York, Um, alongside a number of different groups sort of ad hoc Um, but it was like online and like my interactions with people online not on Twitter because I think there's a lot of stuff on Twitter that made me you know gave me pause about the DSA I think there's a lot of very loud sort of bro-y culture that I didn't like before and still don't like but it was getting to know uh, people through Facebook actually Um, and sort of the more I felt like down to earth members, um, and just how funny and silly they were (laughs) was like, what got me to be like, you know, whatever it was five or six months ago, like, you know, it's, I, I don't want to just be working alongside this group. I want to join it. And when you plug yourself into a network like the DSA, it's so much easier than just being like, okay, I'm an individual. I'm trying to figure out like what, you know, what protest should I go to? Like, you know, how should I phone bank? Like all of that kind of stuff. When you're part of an actual, you know, organized network, um, you just become such, so much more efficient and such a better and more effective political actor. And for those of us who are part of these organizations, whether it's the DSA, you know, the ISO or, you know, Black Lives Matter, whatever it is, 
getting people, you know, to join us and become part of these established networks that are not just online, but function on the ground. Um, if that's what we're trying to do, then I think the internet is a huge and potentially really helpful tool. Um, and I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, the DSA has quadrupled in size over the last year. Obviously, you know, Trump and all of that have, have really, has really led to that boom. But I also think that people connecting online is um, the medium through which this frustration is being channeled into action. Yeah, and I want to add uh, as an, as sort of a continuation of that thought, as long as we uh, treat the internet like something that isn't a serious tool, we're not going to think of ways or really seriously pursue ways to treat it as a serious organizing tool. Um, I think in order to pursue that creatively and with dedication, we definitely have to open ourselves up and to, you know, conceiving of it as something serious and something that has a lot of potential if we were able to tell our great great grandparents or great 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 grandparents that we had a little box in our pocket in which you could access all the information (laughs) that had ever existed in the entire world and they asked us what we used it for how embarrassing our responses would be (laughs) yes (laughs) just a reminder yeah pretty much just memes Yeah. yeah um and in a way, like, it sounds like some of you are touching on the ideas of selectivism or clicktivism or sort of this, like, easy way of participating in anything that doesn't necessarily take a lot of effort or move the needle on anything. But I think it can create a community of people who share a common commitment to a cause um, because it does lower the the cost of interaction. Mm -hmm. So because it's easier for people to get started, more people do get started. So that's a positive. But I think there are a lot of hidden costs also. So with the current system, social media platforms that are broadly used are making a huge amount of money through things like selling advertising and personal data about the people who use it. And they're also counting on the users themselves to generate the content and supply them with free content. And so they're really only responsible for providing a platform. Yeah, that's absolutely ridiculous. Have y'all ever had it like your tweets show up in someone else's article or like your Instagram picture show up in an article that you had no idea about before it was published? Because I've had it happen at least on three separate occasions. Um, No, I'm not that interesting. Yeah, they weren't even good tweets or pictures. It's just like, like a hashtag was searched and someone decided to compile a bunch of these messages from, you know, that hashtag and put them in an article without asking anyone beforehand. And I have a huge problem with that, like people making money yeah. off of me without without my permission. Um, but then again, I don't know, I guess I guess I probably gave permission in the terms of service, which I wouldn't know because i didn't read them (laughs) which everyone reads yeah Yeah, everyone Everyone reads all the way through (laughs) totally come on so an interesting question to me as we're thinking about praxis is what might this look like under more under socialism like for example Mm. what if it were even a co-op what would a social media company that was a co-op look like and would it be too hard to be agile and competitive with the fast pace of technology and I know we don't have the answers to that, but I think it's a good question. And I would be really interested in hearing what people listening think about that, too. So if people want to tweet us or email us about it, I want to keep that conversation going. Yeah. I don't know if it would have to be competitive at that point. I mean, if it's cooperative, then 
it's just, I don't know, going to get better once people can make it better. Um, yeah, I guess what I mean by competitive is like if, if a lot of people are on Facebook now and you have a co-op that tries to do something, an alternative, but Facebook, because it's there are fewer people who are decision makers at the top because they don't have to adhere to democratic processes, are they able to push through advances faster and does that make it less likely people will switch? Because mm-hmm. democracy takes a long time. <laughs> It just, it just does. Any of you so, that were I at just... the DSA National Convention can uh, concur. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it takes a long time and a lot of snacks. Yes. And for those who weren't there, this is a room of 700 people. Uh, and the process was yes. intensely democratic. <laughs> sure was. Severe democracy. <laughs> I think one thing I, I wanted to touch on before we wrapped up is is how the inundation of technology within our lives particularly um you know when we are politically involved that it creeps into mental health and we will have a whole episode uh dedicated to capitalism and mental health but um regularly i see people posting on twitter about how their therapist is telling them to unplug because it is not mentally healthy for us to be inundated this with this much information much of which is traumatizing and bad at the rate at which we are now and i think it's important like for me it's a really important reminder to unplug because you know, especially if you're a, a person that people are depending on in different circles of activism, it's really hard to unplug. Like, you know, of course, people joke about uh, never log off and all of that. Um, and I I think it's funny, but I also think that it is really not sustainable uh, in terms of mental health. Yeah, definitely. Um, I... After the election, I really just wanted to get off Twitter, or not Twitter, Facebook, because it was, it was really toxic, and I mean, everybody was, everybody was mad at everybody else, um, and then there were people who were, like, really aggressively trying to tell people who were mad at each other to keep the peace, which, I don't know, they were also not helping, um, and so it became a very unhealthy place for me, and so I, I logged, I mean, I deactivated my account back in December, but um, to get in contact with everyone through, um, like, from my law school class to figure out, like, what was going on the first couple weeks, um, I had to get back on Facebook and join the Facebook group for my class. And I hate it. Like, I hate Facebook so much. <laughs> <laughs> I was doing so much better before I got back on. Um, I mean, the one good thing that came out of it was this. Um, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah. it, I don't know, in the long run, it might have been worth it. Yeah. <laughs> so, keep going online, I think, is the more Never the stop story. posting. But, yeah, that uh, those seven months that I was off Facebook were seven of the best months of my life. Um, so, I don't know. I'm considering re-deactivating it because I really just, I don't need it. I didn't miss it. I rarely use it now. But, yeah, just, I don't know, recognizing of when social media does inf- impact you negatively. Um mm is really important for your mental health and then actually doing something about it. Um, so, you know, deleting the app from your phone for like a week or something, um, even that can have a pretty big impact. So there you go. All right. Well, I think we're about ready to wrap up. 
this has been a really interesting discussion. Hopefully, y'all have enjoyed it. And yay! Uh, we'd like to encourage our beautiful listeners to tweet us. And please keep sending us those hashtag dish pics. We need more sliding <laughs> yes. into our DMs. We are thirsty for dish pics. Um, and <laughs> at and our Twitter handle. Our Twitter handle, if you don't know it already, is We're at also on Instagram at Season of the Bee now. Um, we are extremely online. Yes. <laughs> we are. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Love Bye, you all. I love you. Love you. Bye. 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 Bye.